Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of $15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Hey, this is Whitney. And this is Melissa from Colts Crimes and Cabernet. We wanted to share some exciting news with you. On our journey of navigating advocacy through this true crime space, we believe that the name Colts Crimes and Cabernet no longer reflects our position on ethical true crime content. As much as we have grown to love our original name and our journey to get here, our evolution from that first glass of wine between friends to meeting with family members, survivors, and fellow case advocates has forever changed our stance. We're committed to amplifying the voices of victims, survivors, and experts who are fighting for justice and change in the criminal justice system. We're here to empower you to also become advocates for change, no matter where or who you are. That being said, we would like to introduce you to our new name, Navigating Advocacy. We invite you to join us in Navigating Advocacy through the murky waters of true crime. Let's make a difference together. We'll see you next week on Navigating Advocacy, available wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, True Advocate. It's me, Eric Carter-Londine, and today we're going to be talking about a case that has resolution to it already. Now, oftentimes I will cover a case that has a resolution to it when it makes sense And when it is something that illustrates a legal complexity or a legal issue in New Mexico that I thought was either interesting or pertinent. So this case that we're going to cover today is somewhat related to my baby brother Jacob Londine's case. And I'm not going to go into that right now because I want to tell you the story of Mike Snyder first. I want you to hear all about who he was and what happened to him. Before we get into the legal complexities and all of the things that may or may not be connected to my brother's case, but hopefully I have your attention now. I don't want this to be diluting Mike Snyder's story in any way. The connection isn't really that deep. It just has to do with the law and the way it's being applied. Mike's story deserves to stand on its own, so I want to give him the due respect that he deserves and his family deserves. I am Eric Kutterlandine, and this is True Consequences. Mike Snyder was a very well-respected and well-known master mechanic in Albuquerque. He was regarded as one of the best mechanics anywhere in town. He was dedicated to his work and was known to be the first one to come in and the last to leave. He worked often six days a week without fail. 
Mike knew Jeeps the best, especially the older ones. If there was a problem with a Jeep, he could fix it. His co-workers would say that he was a quiet man who was dedicated to his work. Mike was making a six-figure income in 1991. He was doing well for himself and seemed to not have a care in the world. He also met the love of his life, Ellen Sheffield, that year. Mike was known to leave flowers on her car with notes for her while she was at work. He'd call in the middle of the day just to see how she was and to chit-chat. Both had been married before, and Ellen had a son from her previous relationship, a son named Michael. Mike adored Michael and raised him like he was his own son. Mike and Ellen were married in 1994, and shortly after they were married, Ellen became pregnant. She gave birth to a girl. The Snyders named her Elizabeth, and she was the apple of Mike's eye. He doted on her. Ellen would bring her to the dealership that Mike worked at, and he would have candy and balloons waiting for her. Visiting dad at work was like a party. The Snyders built a huge house in North Albuquerque Acres at the foot of the Sandia Mountains, and it seemed like everything was just perfect. Then Mike began passing out. His body would go completely numb, and he was in quite a bit of pain. In the summer of 2001, Mike went to see a doctor and was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. He was prescribed injection treatments to slow the disease, but he quickly began to get weaker and weaker. The man who at one time was showing up to work six days a week was now struggling to make it through the day, and many days he couldn't even show up to work. Then, in late 2001, Mike went on disability. He couldn't work anymore. His body wouldn't let him. His wife Ellen took care of him through his illness. She gave him his daily injections that were supposed to slow the disease, but they didn't seem to be working well at all. There were other problems in the Snyder home, though. One day, Ellen showed up to work with a black eye. She told her co-workers that Mike had hit her and shoved her up against the wall. She also began telling stories about how Mike would wake her up in the middle of the night in a rage to yell at her. He would demean her and call her names. She said that he would wake her up so that their daughter wouldn't hear them fighting. Ellen held an executive-level position at a large car dealership. She supervised 30 mechanics. She was not easily intimidated. She tells the mechanics to jump, and they ask how high. But she claimed that at home, Mike made the rules, and Ellen had no choice but to obey them. She claimed that she was terrified of Mike. Then on January 11, 2002, Ellen came into work looking happier than she had been for a long time. Her boss said that she looked like the weight of the world had been taken off her shoulders. She told everyone that Mike had left. He was starting his life over in Phoenix. She also told them that Mike had been cheating on her with a man. She told several people that the night before Mike left, she snuck a peek at the messages on his cell phone. She listened to one from a man named Dave Simmons. In that message, Dave was telling Mike that he enjoyed their last visit. Ellen said that the message was very sexually explicit and described every detail of the nights Dave spent with Mike. Ellen guessed that Mike was cheating on her. She had been spending more and more time in Phoenix going to continuing education classes in mechanics. That message told Ellen exactly who Mike was cheating with. She told people that she would never leave Mike. She was there for him in sickness and health. She would see this through, but he had no problem leaving her. The morning that he left, he woke her up at 3 in the morning so that they could have their nightly screaming match. But this time, she didn't back down. This time, she told him, that she knew about his affair with Dave. She knew, and she was going to tell everyone. After that, 
Mike just left. He walked out of the house and never came back. He left his daughter that he adored, $40,000 worth of tools, and a beautiful home in a luxurious part of Albuquerque, New Mexico. He was never heard from again. But soon people began asking questions. Where is Mike? How's he doing? Is he coming back? Ellen would tell the same story over and over. Mike just left. He moved to Phoenix and he started over there. Soon after, people stopped asking about Mike. He was missed, but no one had heard from him, so they thought maybe he didn't want to be found. Mike's family began asking questions shortly after he disappeared. His sister Terry listened to Ellen's version of events on January 11, 2002, and immediately felt that something bad had happened to her brother. He wouldn't leave Elizabeth. He wouldn't just stop contacting his family either. But when anyone in the family called his cell phone, it went straight to voicemail. There was something wrong and Terry knew that Ellen had done something to Mike. She filed the missing persons report on January 15th. The police told Terry that Mike had every right to disappear. He was an adult and if he wanted to walk away from his life, he could do that. So no matter how much Mike's family tried to nudge the police into doing something, they wouldn't. No one would really ever look for Mike Snyder, not until several years after he disappeared. Ellen filed for divorce in the spring of 2002. Since Mike didn't show up for the divorce hearing, Ellen was awarded everything. She got the house, the money in the joint banking account, and sole custody of Elizabeth. Shortly after that, she sold the house and moved into a smaller one. She couldn't afford the payments now that Mike's income was gone. Almost a year after Mike Snyder disappeared, she got a follow-up call from the Albuquerque Police Department. The detective asked her if she had ever heard anything from Mike. She told him that she didn't consider him missing at all. He ran off with his boyfriend, and she hasn't heard from him since. She told the investigator that she really didn't care where he went. After that phone call, Mike's name was taken out of the missing person's database. All it took was for Ellen to say that he left, and police believed her and quit looking for Mike. In 2005, Mike had been gone for three years. Ellen's son, Michael, had come to work at the same dealership where Mike worked. He was now using Mike's tools. This meant that Ellen was hanging around that dealership off and on again. Mike's former co-worker asked about him every now and then. They wanted to know if he was hospitalized somewhere in Phoenix or if he had passed away. When they asked Ellen if she'd heard from him, she would just say no and move on. That year, Mike's father passed away and Mike didn't show up for the funeral. Mike's family knew that Mike hadn't moved away. They knew in their hearts that Mike was dead. He wasn't there because he couldn't be there, not because he didn't want to. But Ellen, Elizabeth, and Michael did come to the funeral. They had seen the death announcement in the paper, and they came to pay their respects. When Michael approached the casket for the viewing, he began crying hysterically. He couldn't stop. He passed through the line to pay respects to the family, and then he went outside. Ellen, however, waited around a bit. She approached Terry and asked about the will. She wanted to know if there was anything in Mike's dad's will that would go to Elizabeth and Michael. This spurred Terry to contact the police again. She begged them to look into the case one more time. In spring of 2005, a new detective picked up the file on Mike Snyder. Cold case detective Mark Wilson began looking into the case and he found a few things that were a bit disturbing. He began to look at Mike's criminal history. He found nothing. Then he went into Mike's financials. He didn't find any record of him, 
no bank accounts, no work history, nothing. But when he looked at the tax files, he found that Mike had filed taxes in 2004 and 2005. He had filed those returns in New Mexico, not Arizona. Mark Wilson decided to go public. He began talking with the media and he announced that the disappearance of Mike Snyder was at that point considered a homicide. This led Detective Wilson back to the house that Mike had built in Albuquerque. A neighbor who lived near the Snyders remembered Michael and Ellen digging a hole behind the garage one night. She couldn't remember which night, but she remembered it was around the same time that Mike disappeared. When questioned, Ellen told the same story that she had been telling for the past several years. Mike left after a heated argument and never came back. Mark Wilson found it very curious, though, that Mike would leave and not take a vehicle. The police report showed that all the vehicles that Mike and Ellen owned were at the house when police showed up to investigate the first time. Ellen insisted that he move to Phoenix. Then she said that more recently she heard he was in the Caribbean. She claimed that Mike had called a few times over the years and they were talking more and more about what was going on with the kids. Ellen refused to speak with the police, though. She insisted that Mike wasn't missing. He was living his best life in Arizona or maybe the Caribbean. Ellen emailed Detective Wilson documentation that Mike had wired some money to Dave Simmons. He also helped him rent a U-Haul. And the phone bill from December 2001 showed several calls to and from Dave Simmons' phone. In the email, she said that this was proof that Mike had been supporting Dave Simmons, but Detective Wilson didn't see that as support. He saw it as a friend helping a friend. Wilson never found Dave Simmons, and he never found any record of Mike living in Phoenix or the Caribbean. Everything that Wilson found brought him back to the old neighborhood. He felt so strongly that Mike never left Albuquerque Acres that in 2006, he brought cadaver dogs to the house that the Snyders owned at the time of Mike's disappearance. A tree had been planted in the backyard shortly after Mike disappeared. Both cadaver dogs hid on that tree. A few days later, police started to dig around the tree, but they found nothing. The deeper they dug, the less interest the dogs had. A short time later, one of Ellen's co-workers came forward with a very unusual story. He claimed that he saw Ellen with a black eye after she told him that Mike had hit her. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. He offered her a gun for protection. The gun was loaded. Shortly after Mike disappeared, she gave the gun back. The magazine was empty. He asked her where the bullets were, and she told him that she had gone to the range to shoot it so she would feel more comfortable with it. The man turned the gun over to the police. He told them that he would not impede the investigation. As Wilson dug deeper he found that Ellen had a few skeletons in her closet. First, he found that she had failed a background check when she tried to buy a gun at a pawn shop a few months before Mike Snyder went missing. It turned out that Ellen had made a guilty plea to embezzlement in the late 80s. She wrote a company check for her personal use. She ended up on probation, and after her probation ended, charges were dropped. Terry, Mike's sister, was doing her homework. She was thinking back to just before Mike disappeared. 
Mike was preparing to leave Ellen and was moving his belongings into his mother's home. He had made arrangements with her to stay there. Mike told her that he had been intercepting calls from debt collectors. They were demanding money for credit cards that Ellen had run to their limits. And the payments were past due. Before the call started coming in, he had no idea that this was happening. Terry also found out that Ellen had gotten a second mortgage on the home. Mike's signature was forged on the documentation. Ellen would admit to signing Mike's name to the papers, but would claim that Mike knew all about the second mortgage. Terry would disagree. Why would Mike allow Ellen to sign the documents rather than just signing them himself? Wilson found out about these debts and many more. Soon after Mike disappeared, Ellen had fallen into more debt. 20 creditors were chasing her to collect more than $120,000 that she owed on her credit cards. Wilson kept digging. They needed to find Mike's body to prove that Ellen had killed him. In 2010, the break that they needed came in the form of an anonymous tip. Patrick told Wilson that he knew that Mike Snyder was buried in the yard at the Snyder's home in 2002. Michael had told him all about it when they were in middle school together. Michael had told him that on the day Mike was murdered that his mother had shot him. He saw the body lying in their house. Michael would tell the story again and again when he and Patrick were out drinking. Patrick agreed to wear a wire and get Michael to tell the story again. Michael admitted to Patrick that he had helped his mother bury Mike in the backyard. The police showed up at the dealership where Michael was working a few days after Patrick recorded the call with Michael and they asked to speak to him. He agreed and they went to the break room to talk. At first, Michael told the same story that he and Ellen had been telling for the past eight years. Mike ran off with a man and left the family to fend for themselves, but Wilson knew better and he let Michael know it. So Michael began to tell the real story or at least as much as he understood it from his mother. In the early morning hours of January 11, 2002, Michael woke up to the sounds of gunshots, thinking that Mike had shot his mother. He called 911, but Ellen told him to hang up the phone. Michael then saw Mike's body lying on the floor. Ellen told Michael that she had shot Mike in self-defense. She convinced her then 17-year-old son to help her wrap Mike's body in a waterproof tarp and help her move it to the garage. She then told Michael to go to school. When he got home, he saw that the pit had been dug in their backyard. Again, Ellen asked for Michael's help moving Mike's body. They put Mike in the pit and covered it with construction materials that were lying around the property. Then Ellen called a bobcat operator and had him cover the pit, and she hired a construction crew to lay steel reinforced concrete on top of it. In 2010, when Michael told the story, a six-car garage had been built on top of that pit. The police showed Michael an aerial photo of the property from 2002 and asked him to mark the spot where he thought Mike was buried. Michael drew a circle on the area where he thought he saw the pit being dug. At this time, the house was owned by two Albuquerque police officers. They happily allowed the concrete under the garage to be torn up in order to find Mike's body. The concrete was broken up, the rebar was sheared through, and a pile of trash was taken out of the hole. And underneath that, they found Mike, still wrapped in a tarp. Mike Snyder had never gone to Phoenix, nor did he file his taxes in 2004 or 2005. The quiet, hardworking mechanic who doted on his daughter and was loyal to his family was right where his ex-wife put him eight years before. Ellen Snyder lawyered up right away. But she gave a full statement about her version of events on the night of January 11, 2002. 
In her sworn statement, she said that Mike had woken her up at 2 or 3 in the morning so they could have their nightly screaming match. She said that there was some pushing back and forth, and on that night she told Mike that she was going to tell everyone about his affair with Dave Simmons. She said that she had grown tired of fighting with Mike and she had become more courageous in her dealings with him. She said that Mike denied that he was having an affair with anyone. He was screaming at her and calling her names. She ran to the bedroom to get the gun she had borrowed from her coworker. She pointed the gun at Mike. She said that Mike laughed at her and called her a coward. He said that she would never tell anyone anything and she didn't have the courage to shoot him. She said that she became so afraid that he was going to become violent that she shot him. She said she shot him several times. She kept shooting even as he was trying to run away from her. She fired until the gun was empty and then he fell and didn't get back up. She said that Elizabeth, who was then six, didn't wake up, but Michael did. She told Michael to hang up the phone while he was dialing 911, and then she told him to just go to school. When Michael and Elizabeth were in school, she tried to move Mike's body into the garage, but she couldn't do it herself. So when Michael got home, she asked him to help her. She had to ask several times before he would finally agree. Michael was so traumatized from seeing Mike dead in his home, he didn't want to have anything to do with moving him. The following day, she looked in the newspaper and found a man with a backhoe. She paid him to dig a hole in the yard. When he was finished, she and Michael put Mike's body in the hole, covered it with construction waste, and threw some dirt on top. She then went to the paper and found a man who had a bobcat. She paid him to fill the hole the rest of the way. When she finished her statement, she was charged with the first-degree murder of Mike Snyder. Now, it was up to the state to prove that Ellen had planned this murder all along. Mark Wilson needed to recreate an eight-year-old crime that was never investigated. When Mike was brought in for autopsy, the bullet wounds showed that he had been shot while he was lying down. The medical examiner who had performed the autopsy reported that the projectiles had come up through Mike's body from the stomach area to the shoulder. Ellen had shot Mike while she was standing at the foot of the bed. Ellen had also made quite a bit of money on Mike's death. She got everything when she filed for divorce, including all of the joint accounts that they had together and Mike's $60,000 401k. Not only that, but she continued to collect his disability checks for a year after he was gone. Each of those checks was $4,000. She also filed tax returns in his name in 2004 and 2005, presumably so she could get a refund. The police had testimony from Michael and Patrick that would show that Ellen had pulled the trigger. But that was all they had, and it wasn't enough. And there was no other evidence that Ellen had planned this murder. No crime scene, no forensic evidence. They didn't think they could prove murder in the first degree with so little to go on. And you're all asking, why didn't they try to prove second degree murder or even manslaughter? At that time, there was a statute of limitations on everything but first degree murder. And that statute of limitations had run out. The statute of limitations on second degree murder was six years. In the end, neither Ellen nor the prosecution wanted to take a chance on a trial. A first-degree murder conviction would mean that Ellen would spend the rest of her life in prison. But if the jury acquitted, it would mean that there would be no justice for Mike's murder. Ellen accepted a plea deal a month before she was to stand trial. She waived the statute of limitations and made a guilty plea to voluntary manslaughter, tampering with evidence, falsifying tax returns, and tax fraud. She was sentenced to 11 years in July 2011. Under the circumstances, that was the maximum sentence that a judge could give. 
In April of 2018, she was released. She had served less than seven years for murdering Mike and covering up the crime. If Ellen had been convicted of first-degree murder, her sentence would have been a maximum 251 years. Instead, she served less than eight, less than the time that she covered up her crime. Second-degree murder would have carried a sentence of 15 years. Mike Snyder's family was angry, and so was Detective Mark Wilson. They could have easily gotten a conviction for second-degree murder in Mike's case. The family began petitioning the governor to lift the statute of limitations on murder that was less than first degree. They argued that this statute should have been lifted when the statute for first degree murder was lifted in 1997. Yes, at that one time, there was a statute of limitations on first degree murder in New Mexico. The fight to lift the statute of limitations began in 2012 with Mike's family and Detective Wilson carrying the torch. Former state representative Bill Rem began lobbying for eliminating the statute of limitations on second-degree murder. Ellen Snyder was his primary motivation to fight for the bill. House Bill 31 would also eliminate statute of limitations for any crime that was connected to a murder, like tampering with evidence or a conspiracy. The bill also extended the statute of limitations for any first-degree felony to 10 years. Murder and certain sex crimes would have no statute of limitations connected to them. That bill died on the House floor in 2012. Infighting between Democrats and Republicans would see several bills regarding the statute of limitations for murder die on the House floor over the next 10 years. Finally, in 2022, House Bill 79 was passed into law. The statute of limitations on murder was eliminated. House Bill 79 also changed the amount of time served for attempted murder to 9 years and increased the penalty for second-degree murder from 15 to 18 years. Mike Snyder's death was senseless, but the result was that his death gave New Mexico something it needed for a long time. It gave the state a greater sense of justice. His case was the cornerstone of every argument for eliminating the statute of limitations on murder. Any murder. And it was about time. Too many murderers like Ellen Snyder had gotten away with reduced sentences and plea deals when they could have been convicted. And now let's bring this back to what I alluded to in the beginning. How is this connected to Jacob's case? As you probably have figured out since you've listened to the case and you finally got here to the end, it does have to do with the statute of limitations that the district attorney was claiming was a barrier to prosecution for Jacob's case. This is the same statute of limitations that has since been repealed. And there were cases that went through the Supreme Court in New Mexico that also helped to make that rollback of the statute of limitations something that can be done even though these cases occurred when there were a statute of limitations. I hope that makes sense. So essentially, Jacob's case was under a statute of limitations in 1987 when he died. And now because of this and because of the Supreme Court ruling, his case is now able to move forward with the investigation and potentially, hopefully, one day prosecution of his killer. So that is Really something that I'm so grateful to Jackie for digging into and helping to explain through Mike's story. I wish Mike's family nothing but peace. I hope that they get that. And it's just a travesty. And I'm so sorry that his family had to go through that. His loved ones had to experience that. And that his daughter will never know her father. It's just a complete tragedy. But... I'm grateful for the ways that the court systems have been adjusted and the legal system has been adapted to deal with these kinds of issues. 
thanks in no small part to Detective Wilson and the family of Mike Snyder. So I want to send them my heartfelt thank you for turning your tragedy into purpose to making sure that other families don't deal with the level of problems that you've had to deal with in this case. My heart goes out to you. Okay, True Advocate, that's all the time we have for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want to support the show, go to patreon.com slash trueconsequences or ko-fi.com slash trueconsequences. You can find out more information about the show at trueconsequences.com or you can follow me on social media, Facebook and Instagram, True Consequences Pod, and on Twitter at TrueConsPod or find me on TikTok at Eric Carter Londine. Thanks for listening and stay safe, New Mexico. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.